Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Every three months for Spirit in Action, we bring you a special treat from a special guest host, Peterson Toscano. Peterson has talent and passion in every part of his body and soul, and it comes out so beautifully and healingly these days in his work on Citizens Climate Radio, a monthly podcast he does artistically and creatively educating the world about the threat and solutions around climate change. You'll find his CCR, again, that's Citizens Climate Radio, not Credence Clearwater Revival. You'll find his CCR podcast on our NordenSpiritRadio.org website and a lot of other places. But also on our site, you'll find the Bible Bash podcast he does with Liam Hooper, and you'll find the interviews I've done with him because he's done so much good work for the world. Just search Peterson on NorthernSpiritRadio.org and listen, and you'll come to understand the power and insight Peterson Toscano shares with us. I'll turn the microphone over to you now, Peterson. Mark for sharing the mic with me. Our show today is packed with incredible guests. The folks who teach professionals at zoos, aquariums, and national parks will share some of their best strategies for talking about climate change. Sean Degg will walk us through a really cool and powerful thought experiment to help us experience a world without fossil fuels. Poet Catherine Pierce tells us how she created the poem Anthropocene Pastoral, and then she will read it for us. But first, I get to share some good news. Founded in 1881, Tuskegee University is an historically black university in Alabama. Since the early work of George Washington Carver, Tuskegee has trained generations of researchers who have been unraveling the mysteries in the natural world. Dr. Carver famously said, quote, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour, if we will only tune in, end quote. Two researchers from Tuskegee have been tuning in and have made a series of extraordinary discoveries. These they found in agricultural waste. Out of the muck, <laughs> they discovered a natural alternative to plastics, one that will biodegrade in less than 100 days. As you are about to hear, though, they discovered this material also has other extraordinary properties that can potentially help us in taking on carbon dioxide pollution. Meet Dr. Donald White. Originally from Richmond, California, as a boy, Dr. White discovered his love for science. I got into it in elementary. There's the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley right up the hill from UC Berkeley. And we went there on a field trip. And I think they were doing a dinosaur exhibit at the time. I mean, that place is like a playground. I mean, it was absolutely great. And I, I mean, it just took 
took me over. I had never been to a place like that before that. And it just really took me into the sciences. So it, at, at first, initially, it was everything scientific, right? So chemistries, the biologies, I like physics, astronomy, all of it, environmental science, all of it. But it got more specialized as I got older. Dr. White specializes in chemistry. He received most of his scientific training from Tuskegee University and just this fall received his Ph.D., He, along with a team of other researchers, dove deep into the world of food waste to explore the many potential uses of cellulose. With all of this food production, you have food waste because that food has a shelf life, right? And so you have this agricultural waste in hundreds, if not hundreds of millions of metric tons every single year. And that's per country. I mean, it's just crazy how much ag waste we're producing These things actually produce methane gas, they produce carbon dioxide, you know, as they biodegrade. But also, there are some structural components to the plants, like cellulose. So we extract the cellulose from the plants, and then we use it. It's all about tunability, so we can change the surface chemistry. Depending on the type of property we are looking for, we can actually tune the nanocellulose or our nanomaterial for a bunch of different uses, right? It's abundant relatively easy to work with and it's it's really strong which is great plants use it as that rigid component um it has all different types of abilities optical abilities i mean i mean the list goes on and on this stuff is awesome dr white and a team of researchers wondered if they could use cellulose along with plastics or as an alternative altogether dr white's advisor dr michael l curry explains petroleum-based plastics what we call man-made plastics. We don't have the necessary enzymes in the soil to break these plastics down on a fast enough time scale. And so they end up hanging around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. As they break down, of course, they pollute our atmosphere. We were investigating how to take a natural product from Mother Nature and make a bio-based plastic that in turn would biodegrade in less than 100 days but at the same time wouldn't uh, emit all these toxic gases, greenhouse gases, what they call them, into the atmosphere. We were very successful in making this bio-based plastic. This new use of cellulose models responsible design. Here's Dr. White. A lot of times things aren't made with end-of-life perspective, you know, in the fabrication process. It's like, oh, this thing is really, it's really strong. It's really cheap to make. Let's go ahead and make a ton of it. Once a ton of it is made, oops, by the way, it's bad for the environment because it won't break down. Now, if they only discovered a true bio-based material as a replacement for petroleum-based plastic, that would be enough cause for celebration. But when scientists unearth something like this, they do further research. Once we make one discovery, we, we look further down the road and try to figure out, okay, It can do this process, but can it do Y and Z? And so we try to capitalize on materials as much as possible. And this is when their discovery becomes even more extraordinary. Turns out this naturally formed cellulose can do some pretty amazing things. The Curry team discovered a natural, truly biodegradable alternative to petroleum-based plastics. But wait, there's more. Here's Dr. White without giving too much away, right? Because we're going for a patent on this technology. One of the things that we noticed after treating the cellulose, it actually started to sequester carbon dioxide out of the air. And so now we can actually grab that carbon dioxide out of the air, 
and we can extract it from the cellulose and repurpose it for different uses. Here's Dr. Curry. But once it goes through the process that we have discovered for that particular material, immediately when you expose it to ambient conditions, it starts to capture um, carbon dioxide, CO2. Wait, there's still more. Dr. Curry explains how Dr. White discovered something further. And then it holds it there until we place it in a medium that where it will release. So for instance, we can place this back into water and it will immediately release that CO2 into water without any influence from the outside, which could be very useful for agriculture because as you know, agriculture, um, plant growth depends a lot on CO2. Cellulose is the gift that keeps on giving. You have this material, you can modify, it can capture CO2 and deliver nutrients. I mean, you kind of have a a win-win there. The Curry team will continue to research cellulose and will get input from other scientists. Dr. White understands there are ethical matters that must be considered when introducing new technology, even if it's based in nature. For instance, the natural substance of asbestos served a great function as a building material. It turned out to also cause lung cancer and other diseases. Yeah, people are right to be scared because you you never really know what's going to happen. It's like technology with asbestos, right? It was strong. It was super thermally stable. You know, it was a great material. It was the new wonder material. Oh, but by the way, it's causing disease, right? They were using it for like flame retardants and all of this kind of stuff. And it was like, okay, now we got to get rid of the asbestos. There needs to be a couple of safety nets put in place to where, you know, you have a technology and then you have a certain amount of research being done. And I think that the scientific community does a pretty good job at that. A technology is highly scrutinized. So even if you're going for patent, there are scientists on the other end looking at the data, looking at the information, looking at other data that's been published and comparing it. Our peers do a really good job with actually scrutinizing the information. Well, there is strong incentive to develop solutions that will address our growing climate change problems. Dr. White is aware greed can push products into the public before proper scrutiny. The problem, I think, really comes from like, can we make a whole lot of money off of this? You know, you got a business guy come in, doesn't really understand the science. They kind of fund this thing. It's like, hey, hold on. Ethics definitely comes into play there. This is groundbreaking stuff. So I asked Dr. White, is there a Nobel Prize in your future? (laughs) So I hope I, you know, I'm, um, (laughs) it's always been a dream. And this is kind of crazy that, that I win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Right. I mean, you got to be like extremely lucky to win the Nobel Prize. I mean, of course, you got to be smart and, you know, disciplined. But um, <laughs> I can only pray that, you know, one day we win the Nobel Prize. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd probably cry. These discoveries by the Curry team seem downright miraculous, like from another world. <laughs> In fact, I began to get suspicious. It sounded almost too good to be true. So, as a serious journalist, I confronted Dr. White and asked Point Blake, Is it possible that you're really from Wakanda, the super-advanced hidden kingdom in sub-Saharan Africa? Sure, Marvel Comics makes it look so fictional, but the Black Panther comics and movie reveal some pretty amazing Wakandan technology. (laughs) No. (laughs) I wish. No, I'm just a kid from Richmond, California. Graduated from John F. Kennedy High School (laughs) on Cutting Boulevard, the south side of Richmond. 
And I've been there until I came here to go to college. And I, no, that's, yeah, no, I'm not from Wakanda. I'm from Richmond. <laughs> no, there is no otherworldly magic here. Just good hard work conducted by dedicated and disciplined scientists looking for solutions. There's really good science being done. I mean, you know, you got people out there coming up with, myself included, coming up with some real life solutions to some hard problems. Doctors Curry and White continue in the tradition of George Washington Carver and the many curious, well-trained and highly skilled researchers that have come out of Tuskegee University. You know, I'm thankful for this platform to show the, the science that we've been doing in our lab. I mean, you know, we spend a lot of late nights in here. I spend a lot of late nights in here. And it's really cool to actually have an opportunity to say, hey, you know, we're doing this. And it's really cool. We can talk about it. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, we have some solutions and some some options. I think the people need to know that we are definitely working diligently to solve some of these hard problems. So I want my research to do more than what it was intended to do. I wanted to be able to expand out into the world and be a symbol for diversity, be a symbol for clean living, be a, a symbol for what we what we can accomplish as a nation when we put our minds to it. What really inspires me now is that the legacy of George Washington Carver, the legacy that he left behind, how he changed the world. Just from his research, he was able to impact diversity, impact communities, impact health. He impacted and opened doors for other minorities and even other scientists. To learn more about the work Dr. Donald White and Dr. Michael L. Curry and their team are doing, visit our show notes. I have links and much more. You can find the show notes at citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Select Citizens Climate Radio on the menu to the right, then go to episode 41. That address again, citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Now it is time for the Art House. Joining us is poet Catherine Pierce. She co-directs the writing program at Mississippi State University. I invited Catherine to reveal to us the often secret world of poetry. I like poetry a lot, but I admit sometimes much of it goes over my head. Catherine will tell us about the creation of the poem and the many choices and changes she made in creating it. Then she will read her poem. It's an incredibly moving artistic meditation on climate change. First, Catherine talks about the inspiration for the poem. I started writing the poem during the superbloom, the California superbloom of 2017, when the California deserts were just covered in all these gorgeous wildflowers. People were traveling out there to see them, and all these articles were being written about them, and all these photographs were being published, and it was gorgeous. I was thinking, wow, this is amazing, and it's so beautiful, and also, wow, maybe this is problematic. Maybe this is not actually as, as wonderful as it seems on the surface. It's so confusing because the word bloom is such a beautiful word and it speaks to so much lushness. And then you think about, right, the algae blooms. It's, it's so unsettling, I think, to hear that phrase. And I've written about that too, actually, about algae blooms too, for, for that reason, that it's, it sounds so beautiful. And of course it's not. And so that's kind of where the poem came from. I started thinking about the ways that 
So many small things in our lives, or seemingly small things in our lives, are impacted by climate change, and specifically by weather extremes. So that super bloom was caused, as so many things are, by weather extremes. The region's worst dry spell in history was followed by twice the normal wintertime precipitation, and it caused this really gorgeous super bloom explosion. It didn't just come out of sort of perfectly innocuous circumstances. It came out of extreme weather. I was thinking about how often we all experience extreme weather these days. Just very wet days, very dry days. You know, warmer seasons, much colder than usual, and how the effects of these things aren't always obviously alarming. It's easy to be lulled by these changes. It's that. Lulling that sense of false comfort that also allows us to pretend that maybe things aren't dire and that we don't need to take action. And so that's that's where this poem came from. Was out of thinking about that. The title was originally Super Bloom. That was what I had called it, which was not that interesting. <laughs> it was it was factual, or at least it was where the poem had originally started. But the more I read it, and I showed it to some people who. Didn't quite hook into what was happening, and so I made some revisions based on that. But the title was one of the big revisions that I made. I liked the idea of playing with the, the pastoral tradition in poetry. You know, these poems that kind of meditate on on nature and the, the peacefulness of of the earth and the surroundings. And I wanted to sort of play with the irony of having a poem that would that would be a pastoral poem, but that would be about something being destroyed, even through its beauty. Once inspired, she then began to craft the lines. It started with that first line, which is "In the beginning, the ending was beautiful." That was a line that had just been kind of rattling around in my head for a few days as I'd been reading about the super bloom, thinking about how how beautiful it was, how amazing it was, and how there are often things like that, like the the dogwood tree blooms really early, and we think, "Oh wow, look at that! That's so nice." But actually, you know, a harbinger of something much more frightening. And I was thinking about that, and so I had that line. And then I just wanted to write a poem that was kind of a, a sensory overload poem, in the way that the, the super bloom would be for someone experiencing that. I wanted a lot of color in the poem. I wanted animals in the poem. I wanted it to feel very alive, so that that contrast between you know the beauty being depicted and what it might signify could appear sort of in, in sharp relief, I guess. A poet needs to consider who is speaking in the poem and to whom. When are they speaking? Another choice that I made when I was writing the poem was that it was really important to me to have it be a plural first-person speaker. So not just a, a single first-person speaker saying, "I did this, I experienced this," but I really wanted that we voice, that sort of communal voice in the poem for a couple of reasons. One was that I wanted to speak to the largeness of this, you know, how universal this is, and how how this is happening to everyone. It was important to me in this poem not to place blame exactly. I mean, the poem does place blame; it places blame on all of us. But at the same time, I wanted to make even that feel generous, if possible. Everyone kind of experiencing this together. Everyone kind of convincing themselves that maybe it's all right, and knowing that really it's not, but still kind of trying to justify things, trying to make things feel okay. Going through this together as a as a community of people on the earth, kind of experiencing these changes and it, this progression toward what will be the end of things if if things don't turn around pretty quickly. So that floral first person voice was really important to me to get in the in the poem. And I was thinking too, 
about the tense of the poem. It was originally written in present tense. It was about how it's the ending is happening now and it is beautiful and this is what it does look like right now. And then as I was revising it, I thought, I think this needs to be in past tense so that it has sort of like a, a fable-esque feel to it. I thought it felt a little more haunting that way, like a story that someone is telling after the fact, after this thing has already happened. The poet has many language tools at her disposal. Catherine goes even beyond the traditional use of words to use them in new ways. One thing that I like to do in poems is I like to to verb nouns or to verb words that aren't usually verbs, right? So I think that just makes for sort of an interesting contrast and bit of visual effect sometimes in a poem. So this poem has the line, near the end, we were eyeletted, we were cottoned, we were sundressed and barefoot. And I was thinking of the ways that we, you know, we dress ourselves when it's, when it's warm weather, all that sort of very lightweight fabric and how pleasant that can feel to go outside and just have, you know, these very lightweight things on. And so I wanted to use those as, as verbs to kind of show how actively the people in the poem are, are engaging with this, this process of dressing themselves in these, these light fabrics during this time of the, the world ending, basically. Catherine packs her poem with distinctive images. Well, one thing that made this poem really fun to write, even though its subject matter is pretty bleak, was the fact that I could use so many specific words. Words of different kinds of flowers or different kinds of animals. Verbena and wisteria and onion grass, which is always my favorite springtime smell. And there's bobcats and robins and coyotes and dogwoods. And I just wanted all of these really specific things, these specific names in the poem. Because these are the things that we're engaging with every day and that we're seeing, but we take them for granted. It's so easy to take them for granted. These, these trees that we see or these flowers, these animals that might live in our area. I wanted to sort of single them out and have them in the poem so that we could consider them even just for a second as the poem goes on, because these are the things that are going to be disappearing. And also it's more fun when you're writing a poem to use concrete language, specific language, to use these details that can make something come alive in a way that a more abstract word wouldn't be able to do. Once a poem is complete, the poet then sends it out into the world, hoping it finds its place. So I sent this poem out, as I do with most poems that I write, to a handful of magazines. This one I sent to one of my favorite magazines, the American Poetry Review, and they took it, which thrilled me because it was my first time getting something taken by them. So I was really excited. Every issue, they put one poem on the back cover. So it's sort of almost like a broadside. It's a, it's a big magazine. It's like a newsprint kind of magazine. And so they have one poem that appears on the back cover. It's really visible that way. And so this was where that poem appeared, which was really nice because it meant that a lot of people did get to see it and it did kind of get out into the world. And now, Catherine Pierce reads for us her poem. Anthropocene Pastoral In the beginning, the ending was beautiful. Early spring everywhere, the trees furred pink and white, lawns the sharp green that meant new. The sky so blue it looked manufactured. Robins. We'd heard the cherry blossoms wouldn't blossom this year, but what was one epic blooming when even the desert was an explosion of verbena? When bobcats slinked through primroses, when coyotes slept deep in orange poppies. One New Year's Day, we woke to daffodils, wisteria, 
onion grass wafting through the open windows. Near the end, we were eyeleted. We were cottoned. We were sundressed and barefoot. At least it's starting gentle, we said. An absurd comfort, we knew. A placebo. But we were built like that. Built to say, at least. Built to reach for the heat of skin on skin, even when we were already hot. Built to love the purpling desert in the twilight. Built to marvel over the pink bursting dogwoods. To hold tight to every pleasure. Even as we rocked together toward the graying. Even as we held each other, warmth to warmth, and said, Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, while petals sifted softly to the ground all around us. I encourage you to follow Catherine and learn more about her work. She explains how. I'm on Twitter. It's Katie with a K, P. Pierce, because I spell Katie with a K, even though I spell Catherine with a C, which is totally confusing, but it's just how it is. And then I'm on Facebook, Catherine Pierce, and then my website is just CatherinePierce.net, because CatherinePierce.com was already taken by somebody. So, <laughs> In the show notes, I have links to some of her other climate-themed poems that are available for you to read online. Catherine's poem, The Mother Warns the Tornado, is beautifully presented in a short film. I'll have a link for that, too. Find links and more over at our show notes. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Special thanks to Glenn Retiff from Susquehanna University for his suggestion to interview Catherine. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Don't lose hope. Coming up, you will hear proven strategies that will engage people in conversations leading to significant climate action. You will also get to experience what the world will be like without fossil fuels. Spoiler alert, it will be gorgeous. If you like what you're hearing on today's show, you can hear a lot more at my monthly podcast, Citizens Climate Radio. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. And I also have two other podcasts that might interest you. One is The Bible Bash with Liam Hooper and Bubble and Squeak. They're available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned. There's more ahead. There's more ahead for Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. But first, I want to remind you that you are tuned in to Spirit in Action, part of Northern Spirit Radio, website Northern Spirit radio.org with loads and oodles of fine programming for you since 2005 making 14 plus years of spirit in action song of the soul and the other programs we host on northern spirit radio.org track down the links to our guests and our guest hosts like peterson and find the stations where we're broadcast and support them i can't say it enough we need the alternative voice of community radio because the corporate media is not serving our needs. Donate to your community radio station with your wallet and hands and make this a better, more open, culturally richer world. And there's also a donate button on NordenSpiritRadio.org and we too count on your donation to pay for this full-time work 
but start with your local community radio station. Now, back to today's guest host for Spirit in Action, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. I want to introduce you to gnocchi. No, not the yummy Italian dumpling made from mashed potatoes, flour, and eggs. I want to introduce you to NNOCCI, the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation. For nearly 10 years, Noki has connected with people in zoos, aquariums, and parks around the USA. Just how many people? 440 individuals who are in the network after 10 years, and these are folks who are trained to train others in climate communication. They are from 38 different states, from 184 different institutions, and collectively we reach each year between all of our institutions something to the order of 190 million people a year. That's Hannah Pickard. She has a great job. I work at the New England Aquarium. I get to travel all over the country and train people in how to talk to their friends and family about climate change and help spread some hope. Hannah is also one of Noki's creators. So what exactly is Noki? A combination of climate scientists and informal science educators. The folks that you would engage with if you walked into an aquarium, you walked into a zoo, you walked into the national park, and there's somebody there who can chat with you, can share stories about the animals or their collections. This network primarily focuses on those two audiences and the idea that learning together between the climate scientists and the educators, that there's even increased benefit, that the relationship of having a colleague who's a climate scientist, or if you're a scientist, having a colleague who's an educator, that that also makes your own professional work stronger, is core to our work. In episode five, Eileen Flanagan mentions the four roles necessary for social change, advocate, rebel, organizer, and helper. Hannah Pickard operates in the role of helper. She researches effective strategies for talking about climate change. Then she teaches others these better communication practices. In a moment, you will meet someone from the San Francisco Zoo who has successfully used the Noki techniques. But first, I asked Hannah what advice she has for you, and for me, those of us who want to be better climate change communicators. Get rid of the doom and gloom. It feels so natural to do it, especially when we feel this sense of urgency or internal rage that you feel when you are talking to people who don't seem to care the way you care or who don't see the urgency the way you do. The natural reaction is to like want to scream at them or want to like wring their necks. We've got these ticking clock ideas. We paint all the death and despair that's going to happen as a result. And while all of those things feel like they paint a picture of urgency, the research really shows us that that becomes very overwhelming. It immediately leads to kind of disengagement. So it might, for some people, might motivate them to give you money right now or to sign this one petition, but it is shown to not provide that long-term support that we need to actually make the society changes that we're going for. So if doom and gloom doesn't work, how can we get people interested and engaged? Paint a picture of what the vision for our future is. When we talk about the added benefits of some of this climate 
adaption or mitigation work. When we talk about the future that we want to see, it's a much more hopeful way to approach the conversation. It's much easier to get buy-in. That's really helpful. If you're overwhelmed, you want to find ways to not get involved. And so it's a lot easier to find a way to pick something apart. Whereas if you're starting with something that is this vision of the future, it's a lot easier for people to find ways to then say, okay, how do I get on board with this? That does sound like the life I want to live. Later in the art house, we will immerse ourselves in a successful future vision. Hannah also has advice for us about our tone. Keep it positive and pragmatic. There are steps we can take. We have tools now. Kind of keeping that tone helps people who feel like, hey, you know, this climate thing, I'm really curious about it, but I'm afraid to get yelled at by a denier. I'm afraid to get yelled at by like an eco evangelist. Like, I just want to learn about it and I don't want to be shamed in any direction. Hannah trains zoo and aquarium educators to make a case for why it matters to act on climate change. She tells me, It's important to remember people do not care about the same thing for the same reasons. Therefore, Noki stresses the importance of focusing on values. The New England Aquarium sees over 1 million visitors a year. Hannah and her team have only about two minutes to dig into what visitors care about and then connect those values to climate change. And so we did some research to figure out what values do most Americans share that are culturally instilled within us that, when prompted, allow people to think through to a policy level of like what needs to be done on climate change. Their research identified two motivating values. The number one value that we all share that kind of cues into this idea that we need to get some some action is the idea of protection. So we have a deeply held idea that we need to protect the people and places that we love. The other one is responsible management. We all we all kind of have this idea that we need to solve problems earlier before they become too big to solve. And that if we have steps that we can take now that are practical, it's in the best interest of ourselves and future generations to take that action now. We don't have to wait for some fancy science solution where we're going to be pulling carbon from the sky. We can start now and there's action actually happening all around us. And there's groups that are working and you can join to help really internalize the idea that we all have a role in being kind of a climate hero. And so being able to expand your communication to include other people's values is really helpful. In a moment, you will hear an example of how this values first method works. For us climate communicators, Hannah also stresses the importance of listening. Making sure that it's not just you talking at somebody, but that you're listening and you're asking them to explain their thinking. Those are all signs of really positive communications. Hannah has even more practical advice to share with us about climate communication. But first, I want to introduce you to one of these Noki climate heroes. Meet Blair Bazarich. So I work at the San Francisco Zoo. I am an education and engagement manager there. So I run our Zoomobile program, which takes animals to schools all over the Bay Area, up to an hour away from the zoo, and teaches 45-minute lessons with live animals on different science or environmental topics from pre-K all the way through college, sometimes senior centers. 
She also runs three different teen volunteer programs at the zoo. In her spare time, Blair co-hosts one of my all-time favorite podcasts, This Week in Science. We do a weekly recording every Wednesday night, and we talk about science news. I focus on environmental issues and mostly animal science. Blair is such a big fan of Noki, she has become a leader in the network. And I do a bunch of stuff related to that. I work in the leadership group on impact and evaluation. I lead a lot of different trainings, and I just do a lot of guerrilla climate change education in my own personal life. Regularly, she sees firsthand the power of Noki's values-first education approach. Even so, she admits... It's very counterintuitive for how we've been doing environmental education for at least my entire life, and I'm pretty sure a lot longer than that. It's values-first, so why do you care about this? And then you explain the process... And you give people solutions. And that, that's kind of the, the very bare bones element of it. Blair echoes Hannah's emphasis on maintaining the right kind of tone in our conversations. We actually have an opportunity to have a conversation that is reasonable and explanatory, that shows a shared interest in a bright future. And if we use that reasonable tone and we talk about this values-first communication that I brought up before... That allows us to bring people into the conversation who might feel alienated if we went at, a, at them with facts right away. So it gives us an opportunity to bring people into a conversation that normally would feel excluded. She also understands the lasting power of infusing our climate presentations with hope. There's this idea that sex sells, fear sells, all this kind of stuff. And that's true when you talk about things like driving clicks or driving money. A lot of the time, fear is the thing that sells in the very short term, which is why in fundraising, you see a lot of tactics of crisis imaging and this word about the climate crisis. This is very common. But what we found through social science research and the thing that I have really found in my own personal anecdotal experience is that hope is a lasting influence that permeates from just five minutes to an hour to days to weeks to months to years. I think this is the thing that keeps me going personally. I know it is hard to stay hopeful when we see political leaders who dismiss the risks of climate change. We are seeing the effects of it all around us. This summer, I facilitated a day of climate change storytelling in front of the U.S. Capitol. Volunteers from Citizens Climate Lobby stood up to tell their stories. One after another, they poured out their grief about the dangerous disruptions in their lives and their loved ones' lives, all because of climate change. It was intense, heavy. I shared this with Blair. Recognizing that there is grief involved with these things, it's important to air it. So I think there's a moment for the good of those individuals who spoke that day to let them speak and let them feel the emotions that they are feeling. There's a lot of social-emotional research that Noki has helped look through and explain and support, looking at what it takes to be a climate communicator. And I was listening to a previous episode of this show, and I was hearing about this dancer who started smoking because of the stress of talking about this kind of stuff. And this social-emotional research actually found that being an environmental educator over a long period of time 
has similar manifestations to PTSD. This is the weight that we carry as environmental educators and climate change educators and people who walk around trying to spread the good word of climate change. We have the potential to wear ourselves ragged and actually be kind of counterproductive in our own way. Blair points out some of what we can do to avoid crumbling under this weight. The solution to that is to reach out to each other, celebrate our successes, and rely on people in our own support networks. Identify the people who you can call when you had a really bad day or you saw some really bad news. And keep hope in your heart. It's what I do every single day when I go to work. Yeah, there's a lot of bad news out there, but I am hopeful for the next generation, for my current generation, for the country, for the planet, for the state, whatever. I am hopeful ultimately. And you have to be because that permeates in your communications and it makes people want to be a part of a solution, but it also permeates into your workspace and your personal space. I don't want to be this Charlie Brown character with you know, with my shoulders forward and the gray cloud over my head, who's a bummer to talk to. Nobody wants to talk to that person. They want to talk to the person who's energized and excited for the future. And I want to be that person. At Citizens Climate Education, we often say action is an antidote to despair. There's things that I can do for climate change that is achievable, that is solutions focused, that is something that I can see a direct action of in my own time. And it's something that I can join other people in doing. Now, for me, most of my days are spent on climate action because it turns out talking about climate change is a real actionable solution. And so in my conversations, in my ways that I teach other people to talk about climate change, I am making my own climate action. And that's because of this issue where not everyone's talking about it. So if I can get more people talking about it, more people are interested in do, doing something about it. There's a ripple effect from just talking about climate change. Over at Noki, Hannah Pickard urges climate communicators to move away from talking so much about the effects of climate change. Do not focus on the laundry list of what is happening. She also says we do not need to talk too much about the mechanisms of how climate change happens. People do not need to know that much science about it. She can explain the mechanisms in a few short sentences. We actually have boiled it down to a couple of metaphors that are really helpful. When we burn fossil fuels like coal, oil, and natural gas for our energy needs, we release extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. In the atmosphere, that extra carbon dioxide acts like a heat-trapping blanket surrounding the planet and making things warmer. Then Hannah connects these mechanisms to a single effect of climate change. This is especially powerful when you can talk about how it affects the community locally. The oceans absorb some of that extra heat. That heat in the ocean causes water to expand, which is one of the mechanisms behind the sea level rise that we keep hearing about in Boston. Hannah then will connect the risk of sea level rise in Boston to the two values that motivate people to act. First, protection. We need to protect the people and places we love. And second, responsible management. We need to solve problems earlier before they get too big. If we have practical steps to address the problem, it is in our best interest to take action now. Over and over, Hannah turns the conversation back to solutions. If we're dealing with the problem being 
fossil fuels for our energy use, then let's talk about the solutions. Let's talk about getting off fossil fuels. And that's the conversation that you really want to have, right? You really want to have people not debating or getting confused or turned around in the science, but really being able to focus on what can we do about it? What are we already trying to do about it? What can you do to help? That's where the bulk of the conversation should be. Providing achievable large-scale solutions coupled with a clear vision of the benefits these solutions will have on our communities and families is an extremely powerful combination. It will motivate people to believe, dream, and act. This message needs to be shared over and over. Blair explains the power of a shared narrative. The other side of the fence, they have their shared narrative down. That's the part that we have not really talked about because we thought since we had truth on our side, that was enough. But we now know that humans are emotional and their brains work in mysterious ways. But the more we know about that and the more we can nourish good emotions and dispel hurtful emotions or scary thoughts, the more we can work together to embrace the power of our own community, the better we can use proven techniques to include everyone in our climate change communication. Community leaders, kids, scientists, everybody. The work Noki does is having a major impact in the work of climate communicators in zoos, aquariums, national parks, and beyond. I learn a lot from Noki all the time. I encourage you to visit their website for the research, resources, and networking opportunities they provide. Hannah and Blair explain how. Noki.org, and we also have a Facebook page, National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation, and we have a Twitter, which is at underscore Noki, N-N-O-C-C-I. The great thing about Noki is that there's a bunch of different levels of participation for you. So if you just want to hear more about this stuff, learn about some case studies that were done, see some of the techniques in action, you can go to climateinterpreter.org and read our blog. Anybody can do that. If you work at a zoo, aquarium, museum, science center, if you're a scientist, if you're an informal educator of any kind, you can apply to join Climate Interpreter and get a profile there. Once you're there, you can talk to other members and post questions and ask the community for help. Many thanks to Hannah Pickard and Blair Bazarich for the great work that you are both doing. Now it is time for the Art House. Earlier this year at the Citizens Climate Northeastern Regional Conference held in Troy, New York, Sean Daig led us in an exhilarating thought experiment. Sean is the leader for the Mid-Hudson South chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby. I asked him to come on the show and share with us his exercise. As you listen, allow your mind to imagine success. Engage all of your senses. So one of the things that I found really useful in talking with people is is getting them to think about what this world looks like once we've decarbonized it, once we've stopped using fossil fuels. Just start with your day, right? You open your door and you walk out your door and what's different? What looks different than you've seen before, right? So you've got a car in your driveway and 
and something we know is different is that car is not going to have a tailpipe anymore. You know, what else is different? You're not going to use fossil fuels to eat your home. Houses aren't going to have chimneys. Where we get our electricity from is going to be different. There's going to be no smokestacks on on power plants. And if you take those three things, just even just starting there, you can start to think about, well, what else does that mean? And when we take tailpipes off cars, that means that we're not emitting all of this funky pollution, you know, six inches off the ground. And that's a big part of what sort of city smell is. Like the cities literally smell differently at that point. You close your eyes, the flowers in bloom, the tree blossoms are going to be things that come much more to the forefront because they're not covered in all this other pollution. The horizon changes color as we stop putting pollution in the air you won't get the haze on the horizons like you do now. It's going to sound different. You know, the difference between an electric vehicle and a gasoline one driving up the street is is huge. And you start multiplying this as you get into these denser city environments and this whole din of our, our industry today goes away. And when that drops out, you know, what are you hearing instead? What other voices or noises come to the forefront? Like, what more of nature can you hear? One of the things people got really concerned about when they started thinking about what was coming with climate change is the world they were going to have to sign up for was this, you know, cold, dark place where they just had to turn off all the lights and and live in a cold house. It's really important to realize that This future without fossil fuels is kind of an amazing one. In electric vehicles that are quiet and quick, that all of this noise and rumbling on the streets is gone. You're living in houses that don't burn fossil fuels, that are well-insulated, using heat pumps and electric to keep the house kind of perfect temperatures year-round. It's a cool place. And I think that we need to celebrate what we are trying to create here and paint that picture for people. You know, that's the world I want to be in. That's the world I want for my friends, for my daughter. This is, this is a cool world. I invite you to continue this exercise. Try some creative writing. Write a short story or a letter from the future about what you see, smell, and hear. Maybe create visual art, a drawing, or a painting. If, like me, you can't really draw, get images from magazines and online, then create a collage. Write a song, create a map, choreograph a dance. Use art to capture a vision of a decarbonized world. Even if you do not see yourself as an artsy person, just try it. Please. Feel free to share your art with me and let me know if I can share it with listeners on the program and also on Facebook and Twitter. If you have art for this exercise to share or if you have an idea for the art house, just contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Before we close, I want to tell you about a new book that was released just this week, Rooted and Rising, Voices of Courage in the Time of Climate Crisis. It contains essays by over 20 faith leaders and climate action figures, people like Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, Reverend Fred Small, 
Rabbi Shoshana Friedman, Karina Newsom, and many more. They provide moral and spiritual aid in this troubling time of climate change. Each section of the book ends with questions to ponder and a spiritual practice to try. I also contributed an essay, Not Our First Rodeo, Memory and Imagination Stir Up Hope. The book is Rooted and Rising, Voices of Courage in the Time of Climate Crisis. It is published by Roman and Littlefield. Thank you for joining me here at Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from my monthly program, Citizens Climate Radio. The show is produced by me, Peter Santoscano. You can find Citizens Climate Radio wherever you hear podcasts. You can also find us at northernspiritradio.org. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. Learn more at citizensclimateeducation.org. If you want to reach out to me, tweet at me at p2sun the letter P, the number 2, S-O-N, or visit my website, petersontoscano.com. Thank you, Mark, for this opportunity to share with your audience. It's always a joy to guest host here at Spirit in Action. You're welcome, Peterson. Very welcome. And thank you for all the good news and work you give to the world and to all you listeners on the stations all over the country and all the listeners joining us via podcast. Perhaps you know someone whose voice would further enrich the audience of Spirit in Action. If so, please contact me and see if there's a way we can help extend the reach of their voice via our website, northernspiritradio.org, or via this program. We need all of us working together for world healing, and I thank you for listening. Catch you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.